Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Welcome back, Revealers, to another edition of the Revelation Project podcast. Today I'm with Angela Todd, who is an archivist, a historian, and an activist. She has always been that girl, talking to ladies of wisdom in the grocery store, reading women's stories, asking her kid, where are the women on that Lego spaceship? and always looking for the women and what their stories are. Now she's on a mission to capture women's stories and to save those stories, usually relegated to the sidelines of history. Her work is shaped by the belief that every woman has a story worth saving and that history needs the stories of women and other marginalized folks to even approach living up to its name. Angela has a BA in Women's Studies, an MA in Literary and Cultural Theory, and did her PhD work in Cultural Studies. Hey, Angela. Monica, it's so great to finally be sitting down with you. It took us some time to get it on the books. It did. It did. But I'm so excited because, you know, for the last, I was realizing October would have been a year that we met. Yeah. I saw it come up in my Facebook feed. (laughs) One of my favorite memories, and I loved what you just said, so I'm going to have you say it again. What happened when we met again? Oh, we were at an event together, and the the day we met, really it was the weekend we met, my inner child met your inner child, (laughs) and the four of us just had the best time together. I don't know, it was instant connection. It was instant connection, but the funniest thing, too, was then we discovered we did have a past. Oh, I right? forgot about that. Right? Yes. Shout yes. out. Shout out to Kennybunk, Maine. And I think you, I was a bus girl and you were a waitress. And where was it? The Shamit? The Shamit Inn. The Shamit Inn. Yeah. Unbelievable. I know. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So we hail back like our inner children were, you know, we were divinely guided to to meet again, I think. And I of course, in, in, in the realm of this work, like who would have thunk? And what I love about your work when we started really diving in was learning about the fact that you love telling her story. I do. I really do. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people say women's history is American history. Women's history is world history. And I really want to push us to think that it's not American history without the women. It's not world history without the women. So it's not that, look, our little package is part of your package. It's that your package isn't complete without us. I love that. It's true. It's true. And one of the things that I think has become tragic for me to actually recognize is the fact that many women today don't believe that they have a story to tell. Oh, Monica, that is one of the things that attracted me to this podcast in particular about your work is tapping into the trance of unworthiness. And the hardest part for me is all the women that go, oh my God, I love that story. I love your work. That sounds so exciting. I'm so glad you're doing this. 
Not me. Not me. I met a woman who was, I think she was a public defender or she was a prosecutor, some public legal position, and she was the first woman in that position in her county. And I said, oh, that's so great. You know, I'd love it if you would consider, you know, that's such a path that you're on. And she said, oh, no, not me. Uh, Right? Yeah. I mean, over and over. Yeah. And, you know, also, though, before I get too far in the you're the first woman to do this, you're the first woman to do that, you know, Studs Terkel has this famous little scenario where he says, somebody says to him that he wants to interview the average guy. And he says, I never met one. But you know who he's interviewing are all the guys. And so that is how I feel about women, actually. And I know that you saw me speak at an event recently, and I told three stories of three very, air quotes, ordinary women. Right? <laughs> I mean, that yeah. just cracks me up. Air quotes, ordinary. Yeah, right. I was just going to say, it reminds me of when we used to do the workshop, which we will again, but the visual, the photography portrait workshop. And women used to come out of the woodwork and say, why do you only photograph beautiful women? And I said, because that's the only kind of women there are. Oh, I love that. And, and it, it, it would set them back. And, and I would say, so you're next? Because they would just like, what, me? I'm like, yeah, like, you're seeing the beauty that she is filled with in the moment that we capture her in this image. You need to claim that beautiful, full of beauty for yourself. It's like, we always think it's someone else. Someone else has the story or the beauty or the, the gifts or the talents. And it's such a lie. It's such a lie. And but I'm trying to I'm trying to connect the links though because what you're saying about photography is exactly what I want to say about the story. And I don't mean necessarily like you have to take a writing class or you have to do this or that. You just tell the story or just, you know, put your papers in a box. Your story matters. Just your story, your ordinary air quote story actually matters. And it matters so much that when other women hear, like, we don't have to worry in terms of like crafting the perfect story. And we'll talk about perfection in a minute because that's a big, big subject. Mm. But we don't have to worry about crafting our story. What we want to do is tell it with authenticity and give ourselves permission to tell our story, knowing that the right it's going to reach the right people, that it's, that it's going to resonate right. for the right people. It might not resonate for everyone. But in order for women to start to be counted, to start to be, we have to first stand up and, and claim what our right. gifts are and claim what our stories are and become visible. So I have two things to say in response to that. One is that the facts of your life become so much more powerful when they're part of your story. And the thing I want to say about that is I know that you were, you were at Born to Rise when I spoke there about those three air quotes, ordinary women. And one, Elmira's daughter and granddaughter were in the audience. Elmira has passed. And the granddaughter turned to her mother afterwards and said, how come I'm learning more about grandma from Angela than I ever learned from you? <laughs> 
Yeah. But her mom said, I have told you all this over the years. Mm -hmm. So it's not that she never learned the facts. It's that once you string it all together and see what this woman did with her life, it has so much more impact. It's so memorable. There's a timeline. There's a, you know, if you put some cultural context around it, like she lived with her grandmother who was born into slavery. She was a poll worker. You know, once you string together a cultural context around your story, there is no story that doesn't have meaning, that doesn't disprove or prove some historical fact, right? Whether it's that your great-grandmother was working three jobs in the 20s, long before the traditional narrative says that women entered the workforce, right? Right. Or maybe it's that You know, you, another story that I've heard is a woman that lived through desegregation. And it's very important that we call it desegregation, not integration. She was 65 years old crying. It still was so painful to her. So painful. So painful. And that was the way forward. That was progress. That was the good side of history. And I think that we can't understand history until we understand women. Until we un- and until we feel women, there's there's yes. also that because what you were just pointing to, I think, is that big connection point that storytelling, when we dare to tell our stories, what happens is that we provoke and invoke these feelings. And they allow us to have resonance. And when we can see ourselves or a portion of our story in somebody else's, it's like being able to say, I see you, you matter. Yeah. And there's this, there's this immediate opening or portal into that place where we can see each other and honor each other. And it's mm-hmm. just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love that. I don't know if you know the comedian Hannah Gadsby. Yes. I love her work. And she says, what I wouldn't have given to have heard a story like mine. I know. So that's another way that we know that we're not alone and we know that we're in community and we know that we are united. That's right. And I think so many of us are isolated because we don't hear or see it modeled out there or haven't heard it kind of so that we know like, oh, I'm not alone or, oh, I'm normal, like normalizing some of these women's experiences right, right, is so important. So I want to step back for a second and give our listeners a little bit more context because when you and I first started talking, one of the things that came up was like archivist. Like I thought, oh, like kind of like a librarian that, you know, like I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah, yeah. Because... But then I started when you were like, you know, an archivist of women's stories. I was like, again, surface level. Oh, okay, cool. And then you're, when we started talking, I was like, oh, right? Like, oh, right. Like, like this is, oh my God, this is such an important role. And, and so I want to also say to my listeners, when I, when I had a chance to really sit down and kind of do a little bit of genealogy or family tree mapping. Mm. One of the things that became very apparent when I started doing that was that I had all the men's lineage, all the men's stories 
None, none of my grandmother's stories, none of my great grandmother's stories, none of them. And it's tragic. Like it, it actually, the fact that my great grandmother or her mother didn't believe or, or weren't allowed or didn't have like, even I know we're both like tapping, we're both like tapping our chests for we can see each other on zoom, but like, we're both like holding our hearts, like the fact that we don't have these stories, that we don't know our maternal line, my mother's grandmother, or sorry, my mother's mother died when I was, I don't know, nine or 10. And, and I didn't know her that well. And then, you know, there's just, there's a way that we are missing so much of, of that thread of history that can empower and inspire and, and just, it's contextual, it's symbolic, it's metaphorical. It's the same way I talk about archetypes. It's a way to kind of help us in our own life story. And what I've loved about some of the discoveries that you have made, Angela, is that You've even told stories about women that have saved journals over the years, and then a daughter has gone to go and get them, and there's nothing in them. Mm, yeah, yeah. I I know of one story where they were filled with weather reports. Uh, I, uh, I know, I know. And Monica, I want to add to your adjectives about part of the urgency of this project for me is that the structures that are set up to save history and genealogy, the patriarchal structure of them makes it impossible to keep women's stories. So, of course, traditionally, you show up in the census, you show up when you get married, and you show up when you die, and you show up when you give birth. So for not all women fall into those categories, right? And having worked in archives for 18 years, I worked in a science archive at a top university, and I know who boxes up all their information and brings it to the archives. It's not women that are feeling the trance of unworthiness. It's men, by and large, men. I'd say I had one woman and almost all men while I worked there that felt compelled to, felt urgently, felt good enough about themselves and their work to think, you know what, this needs to be saved fraternity. So it's our it's our idea of our self-worth and professionalism and I made a discovery, I went somewhere and conquered the jungle, you know, the narratives of success combined with the structures of data collection, really just leave women out in a really thorough way. Yeah. And so it's not only that you need to tell your story, but we need to talk about your mom and we need to talk about your grandmother. So I have a client that I'm working with that the maternal grandmother We don't know anything about her. She lived with a grandfather in the census. Then she lived with an uncle in the census. She had three kids and died. She died in childbirth, but I'm not sure. And nobody knows anything, who her parents are, where she came from, if she, anything. And I'm trying to get all those siblings, the baby of a big family hired me. I'm trying to get all those siblings together to say, what did your mom ever say about her mother? Mm Mm-hmm. She died when she was 32, I think. 
but it's not lost quite yet. You know, we can get together and rescue a little data. And the other great thing about oral history, when you get together, you can kind of feed off each other. Oh, I remember her saying that. And that reminds me, blah, blah, blah. Also, there are so many stories that can only be told with oral history, not only because data collection is what it is, but because rumors sometimes can point you to the direction of where the evidence is. So, you know, I'm from northern Maine, and there are rumors about the the house down the street from my grandparents being... I know, I, I just have to stop and say, like, Maine and rumors. Of course there are, but I'm also totally laughing. Go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, there were rumors about the house down the street being an underground railroad stop. Okay. Like the last one before Canada. Yeah. And it turned out to be true. Wow. But until you start with that oral tradition, you, you don't have who keeps the data on the other underground Right. Railroad. There's nothing to orient you. Exactly. And at least start giving you a, a clue. It's almost mm-hmm. like a treasure hunt. It becomes this game of clue where you're just looking to the next clue to kind of find the treasure. So, yes. so Angela, and you, you have discovered treasures. You've, you talk about how there are some trails that lead you back. So you and I haven't done this yet, but one of the things that you had talked about and that I had shared was that I had worked with a medium, a beautiful, right. talented medium. Her name is Heidi Bailey, for those of you out there that are looking for a, just a loving, genuine somebody who can really help you when it comes to lost ones and communicating with on the mm. other side of the veil. So Heidi had said that my whoever my guides were, were saying to her, check out the lineage on actually your father's maternal side. You may be surprised there were some medicine women on that side. And of course, my father was a very well-known and prominent vascular surgeon in Detroit before we mm. he retired to Maine. And I, at that that like did something to me because I I had never even considered the maternal line on my father's side because my father, I was born when my father was 50. His parents were had died when he was in his 20s. They weren't even part of any conversation in my life. Wow. Oh, right. No stories right. about... My grandmother. And of course, it, it did make me start digging. And I started, there was a very curious woman in our family that did keep. And I found a cousin who kept the Bible that she had iterated all of the people's oh. names and dates. And those, that's right. when you're, so you guys, I, I'm watching Angela's eyes light up because this is the treasure that she dis, that she talks about finding that when she even talks about, was it Elmira's family? Mm. But gathering this data, you start, yes, there's a piece here and a piece there. But when you start putting the pieces together, there's a story. Yes. And, and I like inheritance. Right? And an inheritance. How do you define inheritance? Well, so for ex- I think it's spiritual or it's, you know, your career or your search for justice or, you know, it's not necessarily 
It's like a contest. Yeah. So, and I think a really powerful thing that came out of that presentation at Born to Rise was being able to share Elmira Curry's, let me back up a minute. So the woman that went first that night was Dr. Terrilyn Curry Avery telling about attending a racial inequity protest around police violence with her daughter. And I went last that night and I told the story of Dr. Curry Avery's mom. And so we kind of didn't know until we dug around a little bit that she had gone to a school that was part of a national project to educate rural African-Americans. It was a special project by the guy, one of the guys that was behind Sears and Roback and Booker T. Washington. Wow. And they made thousands, like three or five thousand rural African-American elementary schools around the South. Oh, and Elmira had gone there. I remember this because I was sitting near a dear friend who said, I went to one of those schools. Yes. Rosenwald School. Yes, yes. Yes. And and that particular friend grew up in the South and went to Mm. one of those schools. Wow. Yes. And I never would have known That's how the stories grow and resonate, and that's how our history is made more rich and complex by, you know, unpacking these binaries, for example, between black and white, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, It's not easy. There have been a lot of people along the way that have been focused on, you know, healing racial divides. There are a lot of educated people from rural South back in the day. You know, that's not in our history books. Mm -mm. So anyway, I talked about Elmira and this great school, and she was a leader in her church, and she was a poll worker, which I read in the newspaper, and it really made the connection, right? She was a community lady. Yeah, and she really cared about the vote. She did really care about the vote, and... So the whole presentation about Elmira ended with a picture of Dr. Curry Avery and her daughter the at chills. the protest mm-hmm. as part of Elmira's legacy. I now have a lump in my throat. Aww. We're a mess. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> we are a mess, but these are the best. These are the best things because they really I mean, I'm I'm getting such a picture as I'm sitting here. And as I you know, as I said to you earlier, I had interviewed a woman yesterday who we talked about human trafficking. Oh, yeah. And it was a really emotional interview for me. And the reason why wasn't because of the subject matter. It was because there are women like you who have decided that this is important work and I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell, I'm going to amplify these people's stories, you know, and that, that's what undid me, you know, that's what undid me is that, you know, there's, there's women out there that are recognizing the gaps. They're recognizing that in this system of patriarchy, where all of these tentacles intersect is a, a tragedy that has to be remedied. Is a, is a gaping wound, and it's continually, it's like that hurt people hurt people, while invisible mm. people create more invisible people. 
And we we can't keep doing this. We've got to reveal these stories. We have to reveal these legacies. We have to reveal this history. My project is related to hers, exactly the way you say. We're helping ourselves remain invisible. And those invisible people don't have the value. It's like they don't have value to other people. But they have value to us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when we hear their stories, and this is what she was saying yesterday, as we start to remember them, and I love that word, remember, Mm. as we start to remember them, they magically begin to appear. Love that. Yeah. There's, There's a way that we bring them to life. And I can feel that happening in this conversation, too, if if we all collectively can just focus a little bit more, like our binoculars, you know, on the women. Yeah, yeah, it's time, Angela. You know what I mean? Like, it is so, so, so time. The other thing, Monica, is that I really, I'm always saying there's no them, there's only us. And I feel like a lot of women are so close to being, you know, homeless, victims of domestic violence. I don't know. I don't know that much about um, sex trafficking because I can't take it. Uh, You know, that's the kind of stuff that makes me stay awake and worry about my daughter. Uh, We're all so close to it. You know, if we don't value ourselves and they don't value us, where do we go from there? That's right. That's right. And these are the the this is kind of the impact. What mm. what I think we often don't consider is that under the surface of an issue such as human trafficking or sex trafficking or you know women not having their stories told, the impacts are all of these things that we're talking about. Addiction, homelessness, abuse, neglect, uh, foster care, it just it goes on and on and on when when you think about the fact that one of our basic human needs is to is to feel seen literally to be visible yes then it yes. then it really starts to make sense that if people don't feel seen and it's these micro in these it adds up over time it's like when you're invisible I learned um, actually from Dr. Curry Avery in the anti-racism class that I'm in. Think about this. She she taught us a, a really interesting thing the other day, that little black boys are loved and adored until about the fourth grade. Mm, and, I have heard that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a way that they become invisible, marginalized, neglected by the educational system starting, Mm -hmm. right? And that can you imagine going from loved and adored to like what just happened and not not knowing that there's a way that we've we've been socialized to treat. And again, I have to get more more background on that. I'm I'm just kind of in I'm sitting in anti racism class, sometimes just speechless and stunned and unable to even formulate questions because it's, it's impacting me on such a deep, deep level. But all of these things are intertwined, they all connect at a at a source wound that I'm going to call the patriarchy. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I'm going to bring in Brene Brown's work here, too, to say that part of 
all of our healthy boundaries, all of our self-worth is belonging, which I think is also visibility. And if we say, not only I can't see you, but you don't belong. Yeah. I'm not telling your story. I'm not protecting you. I'm turning the other way. I, I just, yeah, all our stories are connected. They're all connected and they're all valid. And and there's plenty. That's the other thing is this, I, I love, I've been talking a lot about the work of Lynn Twist because she talks about this fact that, you know, there's such a scarcity mentality in our culture. And what I mean by that, or what she means by that is this idea of like, there's not enough. And it's, there's plenty, there's enough. It's this, it's this idea that that's an illusion, that there is more than enough. And if we come from a place of sufficiency and we treat each other in this space right. of enoughness that that then we don't have to get selfish about no no me getting the attention at the expense of everybody else not getting it and then you have this kind of drive towards being seen and it gets amplified into this weird obsession about celebrities and i won't even go there right now you know what i mean cuz like this is what i mean about how like well you and i will like travel somewhere friggin out into outer space with this conversation but I'll, that will be podcast number two, because there's some way that we, that this stuff, that that invisibility feeds that other monster where we become obsessed with being seen. Right. So I want to say, I want to say, first of all, I think that the scarcity in the drive for more, more, more is so internal to capitalism. Yes. And capitalism and patriarchy, I feel like, can't be extricated from each other. No. I'm a structuralist at heart, so I feel like there are structures that are in place that shape everything. Everything. And the other thing I wanted to say is I had a brush with celebrity recently, so I'm doing this uh, group oral history project around a supper club near where I live in Pennsylvania, and they want. They really wanted one of the performers to participate. She's from here. She was a big star. Blah blah blah. And so her son is a teen heartthrob. Was was my teen heartthrob. Oh my god! Up. No, and no. Who who was it? Would I know? I don't know if I can say. Oh, can okay. Say? I don't know. I don't know. But but I'll just say mine was Sean Cassidy. I'll, I'll just say that. Okay. Well, good for you. <laughs> Anyway, we reached out and, you know, she was like, I don't know if I really remember back that far, but it was such a block to participation in this amazing story about a time when America was really different and this little town, suburban town, could actually host, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Sonny Cher. Like, the circuit was totally different. Yeah. But this celebrity model, like the information is just closed off. It's not like I'm going to sit down and talk to your mom. You know, it was, no, I'm not doing that. It's either not high profile enough or it's not. Got it. Okay. Or something. Yes. You know, or it's not. And I don't know if that's the reason behind this particular person, but there's just like, there is a wall there. Okay. So when people say to me, don't you have to be famous to save your story? I say, no, actually, just the opposite. The famous people's stories are scripted and televised and produced, and they're actually not helpful for getting at the nitty gritty of politics behind the supper club where they had both the Democratic and the Republican Party's annual events every year. 
you know, and it seems unthinkable in this particular moment. But yeah, so celebrity actually can be a, a, a roadblock. Yeah. Yes, a hurdle to uh, specificity and and getting the real story or yeah and i'm sure that you know an autobiography by a celebrity is is a real story but it can obfuscate like you know what the kitchen help was doing that day or Uh you know just uh the thickness all the way down so i got i've got a question for you because you just tapped into something so important for our listeners so you know that my audience is probably primarily women i mean i'm just guessing um so i what would you say to them? Like when you say like, no, you don't have to be a celebrity to save your story. Like how would they start to actually tell and contain and store and their legacy, their story? How do you do that, Angela? However you want. So for me, I think the trifecta, the best, highest and best possible ideal is three things. Tell your story, record it as short or as long as you want, save your papers and save your photos. Yeah. So, and if you have journals by, by all means, keep them. They would be part of your archive, right? So there's your voice, your papers and your pictures. Okay. And all those three things together are insurmountable. So I have a client that I'm meeting with tomorrow that has a convoluted uh, family history. And so we're going to meet first so he can give me some context. He's going to give me the story first, and I'm going to try to make sense out of the documents. Okay. And then when you work with women or men in this way, Mm -hmm. what is kind of the deliverable, so to speak? At the end, do you like write up a history? Like, what do you do? Mm-hmm. I can do, you know, again, it's been very diverse. I have a client that just wanted the recordings, no transcripts, nothing. She bowed out of the, you know, it's a complicated relationship with the parents. She bowed out of it early on, and that was for the best. So she's got the recordings of her father singing to me in French. Okay. And she said, I had no idea he knew any French uh-huh. or that he could sing. Yeah, And so that's what she wanted was the recordings. And I'm okay with that. I'm working with a gentleman on his memoir. You hear all these gentlemen, but who hires me is the daughters. Okay. So I feel like one daughter is healing herself through this project. Yes. Another daughter is waiting until her father is done. And she said, you know, my mother bankrolled everything he ever did. When we're done with him, we're going to her. She's passed away. What does that mean? A lot of political projects, and he ran for office, and just, you know, kind of a low-level politician. But you can't do that for free. You know, you've got to have campaign managers and drivers and this and that. And so, as it turns out, it was mom's money behind this political career. Ah, I get it. I get it. And I'm keeping my eye on that because I feel like I'm in the middle of another project that's going to turn out that way. Right. Where it's that kind of the the investor behind the scenes was actually the yes. woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who and invested so in his a- dreams. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. And again, that's the structure of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we don't talk about that. 
when mom is bankrolling dad's projects. And what I want to say too here is that that may have been a very volunteered and, you know, an act of love. I get that. Definitely. I think it was. And oftentimes, though, we do know that because I talk about this all the time, that women have a real thing around visibility and that being exposed in that way from, I think, literally years, centuries of being invisible. It's a very real thing for women to to speak their story, tell their story, get up in front of a crowd and speak, uh, to think they're worthy enough to, you know, write their story, to keep their journals and not burn them, like thinking this is silly, this is stupid, this is not. Like all of those things. And so what I'm hearing is that daughters are hiring you and that there's a lot of healing work done here and that oftentimes the deliverables are what whatever they want, whatever they consider valuable. Exactly. And so if you want to print out the family tree, we can do that. If you want to just have straight transcriptions that you can read every word, we can do that. It doesn't have to be, you know, thousands of dollars for a polished hardcover book. And oftentimes you're going back to the birth records, the censuses, the and sometimes you do find newspaper articles or journals, things that come up in your discovery process. Yes, definitely. And one of the things that I'm in the middle of finding now, I recently upgraded to a, <laughs> a subscription that includes newspaper retrieval uh-huh. for a project that I've just started. And in this project, there's all kinds of secrecy in the family and like, I don't understand where the money came from and nobody ever talked about where the money came from is, you know, oh my God, is there like crime? What's happening? And I'm just finding like all the citations of the mom in the society pages. So funny. Right? Yeah. It may turn out to be that way, it may not. But I think masculinity being what it is and women being, you know, so inculcated into their own invisibility Mm -hmm. joins together at this at this moment this nexus of you know hmm, Hmm. just hmm, yeah what is the power behind the and not to say it's always or anything like that it's just another historical thing that nobody's nobody's tracking nobody's talking about nobody's yeah yep so our listeners, God, I mean, this has been such a rich, rich, rich conversation, mm. and I've loved every second of it, and I know you and I could go on forever. Oh, no. We could. I know. We're all, we're like, over? almost, but here's, oh, no. I know, so we're, isn't it go fast? It's like, it's crazy how fast it goes. So what, what would you say, Angela, like, yes, you told us. Save our voice, right? Voice memos, papers, pictures. Where are we collecting those things? Are we talking like safety deposit box? Are we talking the cloud? Are we talking like, what the heck do we do? Where do we put it? Yeah, I'm going to say that do what's easiest for you. Just start. Keep it off the floor. Keep it out of the attic. Keep it out of the basement. Why? Out of the garage. Why? Because the basement floor will get flooded. The attic, the temperature goes up and down so much that the fibers in paper expand and contrast, and it'll age it really quickly. 
keep it in the top of your closet somewhere that's not against the pipes in the bathroom. Practical advice from Amina. Yes, oh by God. <laughs> by God. <laughs> Pull it out when I need to. I know, it's so and, good. And, you know, being from northern Maine, I actually have more of a Canadian accent. Yeah, you do. That clipped R's, you know. Yeah, like down cellar. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So good. So, and the other thing I want to say is when you're thinking about your photos, an archival thing that you need to know is that there's an important reason to have an archival copy of your photo and an access copy. So one for preservation. I don't know if you're going to be able to, well, Monica can see. I have an old coffee can. I found this last time I was in Maine in my mom's garage full of my old photo negatives. Oh my God. I know. So they used to give us our I know. And you know what? I have a ton of those. And to your point, in a box in the garage, in the attic in the garage, which it so doesn't belong there. So you're saying grab all of those negatives, put them in like a coffee can. Well, actually, uh, cardboard is the safest because if a little something fell into this coffee can, then it would just stay, you know, water, it would stay there. Okay. Okay. So cardboard is more breathable. Okay. Cardboard. Okay, and then what do we down, do? Do we do we like um, bury it in a in a time capsule in the backyard? What do we do then? Yeah, no. <laughs> so again, to really make it doable, the easiest thing to do without actually engaging in a project is to make a plan to share it. Okay, what does that look like? Well, either when you <laughs> reach the point where you're downsizing, or if you have somebody that's designated in your will or if you have a family historian in their family there's always one like i'm the crazy aunt in my family that you got milk crates full of stuff i'll take it you know so give it to that person ideally i'd love it to see i'd love to see it be in an archive which is a repository that will keep it safe and allow people to use it for historical research okay okay so here's what i want to know I didn't even know that there were such places. So, yeah, so that's also really fun. And you have lots of options there. If you went to college, you have your college alma mater. You may feel more like uh, attached to your local community. I feel like I'm very attached to my New England heritage and I'm looking for a place in New England to put my things in a repository. You may have a garden club or a church group or, uh, you know, if you're in the Kiwanis or, I mean, we all have so many affiliations. So what you're saying is that there's many kinds of places that mm-hmm. would want to keep and contain these archives. Yes, yes, especially now that we've reached a digital moment. I wonder, I'm so curious if there's anyone, if there's any organization out there that is doing this specifically for women. Well, all the women's universities have projects around this that okay. may be about women in sports, their alumni. Yes, and I and I and I so go to that place of like, right, but if you didn't go to university, if you weren't right. didn't go to college because so many women didn't because, you know, like because their brothers went. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's what happened in my family, my, exactly. you know, my elders' families. Right. You know, usually you'll be 
tapped by somebody's who somebody who's doing a special project. Like I know there have been archival and oral history projects around women in construction, and there have been projects right, right now. There are some projects going on with uh, essential workers, women on the front lines. So part of the reason, Monica, that we have to do it is because no, there isn't. There's no encompassing anything. I dream of a day, right? Yeah. Because ultimately, I do the by the end of my life, I hope I have figured out a system and an organization that will do the system to capture women's stories automatically instead of it being such a big friggin' deal. There's, it's like we have the technology, you know what I mean? We definitely do. And I love, I'm, I, I love this because I'm hoping somebody who's listening is like, oh, I'd be great at that, you know? Like, I'd be great yeah. at, I'd be great at creating that kind of overarching system that could collect women's stories that was like a digital repository that women could just put it in their digital repository and like, it's, it's there. Yeah, I, I particularly have been thinking about the Girl Scouts, mm-hmm. a women in prison project, yes. um, nursing colleges, like all the way up and down through domestic violence shelters. This can be anonymous. They can be, uh, it, and you know, a, a good archive will put any privacy restrictions on it that you want. And I do hope that that doesn't keep anybody from donating or saving their story. Say more. You can say, well, you, you can say, you know, you can't release this till I'm dead. Yeah. Uh, when I worked in the archives, there's this big complicated fight about something. And I can't even remember the issue now, but I remember there was a two-page single-spaced list of names. And we couldn't let anybody do research in this collection until everybody was dead. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Okay. So every couple of years, you'd pull it out and check a couple names. Like, nope, so and so is still ticking. (laughs) Oh my god! Nobody's gonna know this for a few more years. That is a riot. But it needs to be in place so that people feel comfortable handing over the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The truth. Mm -hmm. Oh, this has just been so eye-opening and revealing. So I just wanna say, I'm so glad that our paths crossed again after so many years. And it, yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that this is the reason why. And I love that you do this work in the world. I love that Thank we you. were able to spend this time talking more. I know that like we covered this much and there's just an endless amount of things that we could talk about in this realm. But what I'm Definitely. most what I'm most proud of today is that just like maybe I didn't know when we first met what an archivist it was or you know what she did or you know the fact that you're out there really cultivating and curating women's stories and helping other daughters and their daughters to heal. It's just it's a beautiful beautiful thing. I I adore you. Thank you. Thank you for this work. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. You know, I'm a big fan of your podcast. It is the Thinking Woman's podcast at this moment. You're doing amazing work. Thank you. Thank you, dear friend. So to our listeners, um, more to be revealed. Thanks so and much. you can Angela. help. Yes, mm-hmm. and you can help. So we'll put all of 
Angela's information in the show notes. So please go to jointherevelation.com as well as if you're not already on our mailing list, get on there because you'll receive the podcast updates each week. And you can also, of course, subscribe on iTunes. So until next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.